when we renovated our sanctuary a few years ago, we found this pulpit. It was ugly brown and uh, wasn't in great shape. And this is what happens when you get an electrical engineer involved in your pulpit renovation project. Is that cool or what? We lowered it for the people, the shorter people doing readings last week for the uh, Christmas Eve service. Anyhow, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Or excuse me, Hebrews 12. Hebrews in chapter 12, as we approach this new year, it's a good uh, opportunity for to take a bit of, uh, of inventory of our spiritual health. Uh, and Hebrews 12 actually helps us to do that. Uh, you recall Hebrews 11, we refer to it as the hall of faith. It's, a, it's an account, it's a, a, a chronicle of the lives of Old Testament saints who trusted in God. And we see what their faith looked at. We saw the dimensions and dynamics of faith, a life of faith in a faithful God. And then we come to chapter 12, and we are called to follow their example, to run with endurance the race marked out for us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So our lives, your life and mine, if you're a Christian, are portrayed as a race of faith. And the hardships that we endure along this race are to be viewed as discipline from a wise and loving and faithful Heavenly Father. And he acknowledges here, and we recognize that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it does yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness by the, for those who are trained by it. And then verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. And that word in the New Testament or in, in Scripture uh, almost always is drawing a conclusion. It's in light of what you just read. This is what you ought to do about it. And what follows here is a series of important instructions regarding a life of faith and faithfulness. These beleaguered Hebrew believers who were discouraged by the oppression and the uh, opposition they were experienced were encouraged to lift up their drooping hands and to redouble their efforts at uh, running the race set before them. And you and I are as well. Well, what does that look like? Well, he tells us. What does it look like to, re to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees? He, he, he tells us in the subsequent verses five very brief but significant applications to the life of faith in verse 14 to 17. Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's essential to salvation. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and defiles many. And then see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Now, <coughs> I'm going to slow down a little bit this morning uh, and deal with these in more depth rather than trying to cover the entire passage. In fact, this morning, I'm only going to look at one, that very first instruction, strive for peace with everyone. So I want to ask you, as you look at the end of 2023 and look forward at 2024, which begins tomorrow, how are your relationships with your family members? If you're married, with your husband, your wife, your children, if you're a parent, your parents, if you're a kid. If you're single, living with a roommate, how's your relationship with your roommate? How's your relationship with coworkers, with fellow church members, people that you rub shoulders with on a regular basis? What impact or what influence do you bring into the lives of those who you see in your daily lives? That's an important barometer 
of our, spirit, of our spiritual health? Are your relationships characterized by peace or by strife or, or by distance? We're to strive for peace with everyone. I have four points here I want us to examine. First of all, we're going to define the peace that we're, that we're called to strive for. We're going to define the peace that we're called here to, distri- to strive for. Secondly, we want to consider why is this peace so important? Why is this peace, why is peace with one another so important? And thirdly, hindrances to peace with one another. And finally, strategies to pursue peace with others. Hindrances and strategies for peace. So first of all, <coughs> let's take a moment and define or explain what is this peace that we are called to strive for. Now, there is a peace with God that's the result of our justification. You recall in Romans 5.1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That enmity, that natural rebellion from our hearts to his, his wrath toward us, those have been removed. We've been reconciled to God. We have peace with God. But that's not what the writer is referring to here in Hebrews 12. We don't need to strive for peace with God. We already have it. That's part of what Jesus purchased for us on the cross and part of what was established the moment we repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Christ as a response to his calling of grace. But secondly, there is a peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks of this peace in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Excuse me, when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is that experience of personal peace that Jesus promised his disciples. In John chapter 14, 27, he said, at at the last supper, when they knew, he had said, I'm going to be killed. I'm going, the, Roman, or the, the, the Jewish leaders are going to arrest me. They're going to put me to death. Uh, this, this phase of my ministry has come to a close. And they didn't know what was next, and they were troubled. And he says at the beginning of chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. But he comes in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So peace with, or the peace of God is the antidote to being troubled and afraid. David speaks of this kind of peace as a gracious gift of God that uh, he received in, in, in Psalm 4, 8. He says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O, o Lord, make me dwell in safety. So there's this peace. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. There's safety. There's health. There's, there's, uh, there's contentment. Everything is right. Now, <clears throat> this experience of peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding, it's something utterly foreign to the world. It's utterly foreign to those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The world cannot give this peace and they cannot know this peace. But it's the precious privilege of every true believer in Jesus Christ. It's our birthright. But there are times when we don't experience this peace. Sometimes fear and turmoil can grip our hearts. Uh, Like Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3.17, we cry out, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And the Psalms of Lament reflect that loss of the sense of the peace of God. Now, this word peace in the Old Testament is shalom. It means wholeness. It means health. It means the way things are supposed to be. 
You recall in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned, death entered, but something else entered, conflict. Immediately, Adam and Eve were plunged into a state of conflict. They were at odds with God. They, re <coughs> they recognized they were naked. They tried to cover themselves. When they heard God coming to meet with them, they tried to hide from God. When he questioned them about what happened, they tried to shift the blame to one another. Conflict immediately ensued because of their sin. Their souls certainly were in turmoil as well. They were bereft of peace. But I want you to recognize, as, as we read in Genesis 3, that they were at odds with one another. They didn't have peace with one another. And that's what Hebrews 12, verse 14, is calling us to pursue, to strive for. We're called to strive for what you might call relational peace. Peace primarily within the Christian community. It's peace with the people in your life that you rub shoulders with, that you have fellowship with, that you live around. It's, it's this harmony, <clears throat> healthy relationships, whether it's at home, at work, at school, and certainly at church. And that peace is more than an absence of conflict. You can avoid conflict quite easily, just avoid people, right? I think about the hermits from the three and four and five hundreds A.D. that would go off and live in caves thinking that would somehow make them very godly. Well, they didn't have to work. They didn't have to strive to be at peace with anyone because they weren't around anyone. It was being, it's being with one another that God uses to mold us and shape us more like Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those can only be exercised around other people. So avoiding one another is not the way to establish relational peace. As long as you keep your distance, there's no problem, right? New Testament ethic doesn't allow that. Romans 12, 5 says, we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Let me read that to you again. Individually, we are members of one another, which means that we're supposed to be involved in each other's lives. Now, there are gonna be some you're gonna be more involved with than others, But there's a mutual commitment here that God calls us to, and it is essential, an essential part of faithful church membership, an essential part of spiritual health and growth. Now, let's be honest. Relationships can be messy. They can be difficult. Uh, there's a book by Paul Tripp and Tim Lane called Relationships, a, worth, a Mess Worth Making. And they make the point in the introduction that we are broken people in a broken community who've experienced God's grace in our daily lives. And that's true. We're broken people. We live in a broken, fallen world. We're in a broken community. This is not a perfect church. If you're visiting this morning and you were hoping to find a, a perfect church, I'm sorry, we're not. And we're not going to be short of heaven. But we want to be more and more and more like our Savior Jesus and prepare for that day we enter his presence. But it's interesting, Ted and Paul wrote this book <clears throat> out of their own experience of working with one another. Paul had been the uh, director of Christian Counseling Education Foundation. Uh, his primary responsibility was over church-based training, which is a big part of CCF's ministry. But they realized we need, uh, he needs help. This is more than one man could do. So they, they found a, a seasoned, faithful, experienced pastor named Tim Lane, and it seemed like a great fit, and Tim came on board to work with Paul. 
And they said, this is just the man we need. And as long as they, you know, for initially they were at a distance, things were great. But once they ended up working closely together, that's when the sparks began to fly. Uh, let me read a direct quote. It says, however, problems arose when we as two leaders who had known each other only from a safe distance began working together in the same room. It became apparent that although we shared a vision, we had very different personalities and gifts. It didn't take long for sin, weakness, and failure to rear their ugly heads. Minor offenses and major misunderstandings began to get in the way of our mutual appreciation and the work of God, that, uh, the work God had brought us together to do. Now, these two men applied the principles of biblical peacemaking, and they were able to forge a healthy relationship, and they wrote a book for you and me to profit from that. But the lesson's important. If two mature, godly pastors, and I will say experienced biblical counselors, if anyone should be this, they were experts in human relationships. But if they found themselves in conflict with one another, what hope do we have? Every hope. But we have to be realistic in our expectations. So it should come as no surprise if we face challenges in our relationships with one another. But however messy these relationships might be, we don't have an option. We're members of the body of Christ, but we're individually members of one another. And so we're called to strive for healthy, harmonious, God-exalting relationships with one another. Uh, and this call goes to men and to women whose relationships should be characterized by peace. So you might look at that and go, wait a minute, it says, strive for peace with everyone. Does that include unbelievers as well? And the answer is, well, yes, to a degree. Uh, but not at the expense of truth or righteousness. We don't want to get along, go along to get along. Uh, we should never be troublemakers, poking unbelievers in the nose and saying, you're going to rot in hell. No, 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 no. We should be winsome and loving and gracious. We should never be troublemakers or instigators of conflict. We should be known as peacemakers. So when trouble and conflict come to their lives, they know you as one who might actually be able to help them. Romans 12, verse 18 says, so if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There are some people, they're not going to live peaceably with you no matter what you do. And we have to make a, a good faith, honest effort. But without compromising truth or godliness, we should seek peace. But those who are opposed to Christ are going to be opposed to you too. And you can't change that. So you do what you can. But again, back in Romans 12, we should never ever repay evil for evil. We should be careful to do what's right in the sight of all. In fact, verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 21 tells us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we should be striving for peace with everyone, but particularly those of the household of faith. We're members of one another. Well, let's consider for a moment, why is this peace so important? And I'll say it this way, it is absolutely essential in the body of Christ. We are called as a church to be a community characterized by peace. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1 and following, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
This unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is an essential fruit of the gospel. It's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of that calling that we have received in Christ. If you and I are not striving, pursuing, eager to maintain peace with one another, we're not walking in a manner worthy of this gospel we proclaim. Now, Jesus' disciples didn't set a very good example for us during our Lord's ministry. If you recall, uh, the gospel account tells us of frequent arguments that they had. And the sad thing is the argument was about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who is the number one disciple? Who is Jesus' best friend? How many of you have seen five and six-year-olds arguing about, well, I'm, I'm Jim's best friend. No, you're not. I am. Well, that's kind of what the disciples were doing. And you go, that sounds kind of childish. But there are ways that we all are tempted to posture for position. And that's what they were doing. And it's interesting, these accounts of these arguments take place in the later years of Jesus' ministry, not at the very beginning. They'd been together for a while. They'd gotten to know each other pretty well. But they'd also been sitting at the feet of the Lord for two to three years. And you'd think they would have picked up something of his character, of his humility, of his servant spirit. And yet, here they are arguing about who is the greatest. They're contending with one another for first place for the blue ribbon for being the best disciple. It's, it's ugly. It's disappointing to read about. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus uh, and his disciples have been walking to Capernaum. They come to the house, and he says, oh, by the way, what were you guys discussing on the way? And it tells us they were silent. And that's a very loud silence because they were arguing about who was the greatest. Once the Lord pulls back uh, and, and shines light on what they were doing, they were ashamed for their pettiness. That didn't stop. They continued, sadly. It took the cross of the Lord Jesus to purge them of that selfish ambition. But the most powerful testimony that we're Christians, the most powerful testimony that we are disciples of Jesus Christ is that we love each other, a love that leads to peace. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is not contemplated from a distance. Love is expressed up close and personal, and it pursues peace with one another. In Romans 14, Paul expresses uh, a concern about this conflict that was going on in the church at Rome. And the question at hand was, is it okay for us to eat meat that's been offered to idols? You see, the, the, the butchers in Rome were all members of this guild, professional guilds, and that was common for any trade. And these guilds were religious organizations. And so the butchers, uh, in, 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 uh, in butchering their meat, would offer it, devote it to their uh, guild idol. And so, you couldn't buy a kosher piece of meat. You couldn't buy a Christianized piece of meat. You're buying it from the idol-worshiping butcher. And there were some that says, no, to eat that meat, I would be participating in idolatry. Absolutely not. And others are saying, an idol's nothing. It's of no account one way or the other. It really is indifferent whether we eat meat or not. And Paul raises a deeper and more important issue for these saints in Rome. And it was, what about your concern for one another? What about the mutual peace 
What about causing your brother to stumble by what you do, even though in your conscience you know you're doing right? What if you're, if you're, if you're causing your brother to stumble or if you're judging and criticizing your brother? Where is the Spirit of Christ in that? And it's in that context, he says in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's not simply pursuing your way, your agenda, carving out so you can have your rights expressed. It's willingly, like our Lord Jesus, willingly laying aside your rights for the benefit of one another. This, this what makes for peace is in parallel in this verse with mutual upbuilding rather than tearing one another down for the sake of meat or whatever your preference might be. This peace that we're talking about is more precious. It's more important than personal preferences. Now, there are, are absolute essential theological biblical truths that we must not sacrifice no matter what. But in my experience, most of the conflicts I've seen in churches are not over theology. Some of them are. But in many cases, they're over something more like, this is what I want. And that's what we're called to set aside. We're to strive for peace with everyone. Have you ever had this experience? You're in someone's home, a Christian family, and they begin to speak derisively and arguing, and, and, and there's just strife there. And it's, it's very awkward. It's very uncomfortable. It's like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I, I have not seen that personally because when a pastor's in people's homes, they're on their best behavior, right? But have you ever seen that? Actually, I have. I've, I've seen some pretty ugly conversations. But we see this fussing and this fighting. We see this arguing and this bickering, and we say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Our lives are supposed to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I, I'm convinced there, if love, joy, peace, and patience, and all the rest deal with how we deal with other people, then it's not simply the peace of God that gives peace in your heart. It's peace with one another. It's a result of love and faithfulness and patience and kindness and gentleness and all the rest. Our homes ought to reflect the fruit of the Spirit of love and peace. Our church ought to reflect the fruit of the Spirit of love and peace. Many years ago, we had a young man come to our church as a pastoral intern for a time. He was all excited about coming to Grace Baptist Church of Taylor's. He'd heard so much. <clears throat> First elders meeting, the elders were in a very troubling conflict over something. I wasn't there. I wasn't an elder at the time. But a conflict over something that I think never, ever, ever should have been a source of conflict. Whatever you believe, it wasn't as significant as the peace that was disrupted in that room. And this brother came and said to me, that was shocking, as it should have been. Now, again, it was a long time ago. Almost all those elders are not here anymore. And uh, our elders' meetings are characterized by love and peace. You have some humble shepherds that I get to work with, and I'm very thankful for that. But as he, as, he, as he watched this, he said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Paul writes the Corinthian church, and he says, you have divisions, you have factions in your church. That's a denial of who we are in Christ Jesus. In every gathering, every meeting, every conversation, we are to strive for peace with one another. That's the peace to which God is calling us. Well, thirdly, I want to talk about hindrances to peace with 
one another. Earlier I quoted from the book, A Relationship's a Mess Worth, worth mating, Making, and again, I want to read part of that quotation again. They said, although we shared a vision, they had a common vision, a common work they were doing for the same organization, they had a whole lot in common theologically, biblically, practically, in every other way, we had a very different personalities and gifts, different strengths, different weaknesses, different concerns. It didn't take long for sin, weakness, and failure to rear their ugly heads. Minor offenses and major misunderstandings began to get in the way of our mutual appreciation and the work of God, the work God had brought us together to do. So the authors here identify a number of, of, of hindrances to peace. First of all, they just had different personalities and gifts, and those different personalities led to different concerns. And sometimes what is really important to you, what you might say, well, it's not a biblical conviction, it's not an absolute, but it really is important to me. Another person might say, oh, no, this is important to me, which also may not be a biblical conviction, but it's really important to them. And it's preferences, it's personalities, it's, it's gifts. You can't point to a verse in the Bible that says you must do it this way. But sometimes we have very definite ideas about how things ought to be done. You remember when Paul and Barnabas separated in Acts chapter 16. They went on the first missionary journey together and it was great success, but John Mark, Barnabas's cousin, had come with them and abandoned the, the, the group early in the trip. But Barnabas, who's the son of encouragement, wanted to bring Mark along on the second trip and give him a second chance. And Paul recognized it's required that a servant be found faithful, and he didn't feel like Mark had been faithful. And he recognized that we're going into hostile territory. This could get ugly. And I don't know that Mark is up to it. And he's right. I don't think Mark was up to what they experienced, the persecutions, the stonings, the imprisonments, and so forth, that Paul and Silas and Timothy endured on the second missionary journey. I think Paul was right. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, said, John Mark is not worth giving up on. John Mark is a man, I believe God has his hand on him, and I believe he can do great things for the kingdom of God. And Barnabas and Paul separated. And Barnabas went with Mark. And in time, Mark, Paul writes and says, Mark is useful to me in the ministry. Mark wrote the very first gospel, the book of Mark. It was first in chronology, not first in our New Testament. Mark wrote the first gospel. He was an assistant to Simon Peter, most likely in Rome. Barnabas was right. Now, what was important to Paul was the faithfulness of the, of the men going on this trip. What was important to Barnabas is, I need to restore this man in ministry. And it became evident it was impossible for them both to pursue those two goals, both worthy goals, in the same mission trip. And so they separated. In fact, it, 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 Acts 16 says that the disagreement was so sharp, they separated. But it doesn't say the disagreement was ugly or sinful or angry. It doesn't say they were hurling invectives and accusations at one another. It was simply, this is what I must do. Well, this is what I must do. We can't do that together. But let me say, most of the time, the conflicts that happen in churches that I've observed aren't that serious. They're much, much, there's a lot more wiggle room than these two men had. Another cause that, <clears throat> that Tripp and Lane identify is sin. Just like in the Garden of Eden, sin 
leads to discord and strife, whether it's selfish ambition, whether it's clinging to my rights, what I want, my preferences. We can disregard one another. We can trample all over one another in pursuit of our own agenda, in pursuit of my way. And we can convince ourselves, I'm standing on principle. But in reality, many times, it's something less principled than that. Like maybe I'm protecting my own turf. This is my turf. It's right. It's my turf. I'm insisting on my own way, and I'm convinced that I'm right. Rather than being patient and even willing to yield. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That reasonableness is a willingness to reconsider your own position and even a willingness to yield if in good conscience you can do so. But when we cling to our own rights, when we insist on our own way, we're doing the exact opposite. Turn with me to James chapter 3, if you would. I want you to turn there and and let's read this together. In James 3, he's been talking about quarrels, excuse me, quarrels and fights. And he says in James 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness, gentleness, as opposed to pride and roughness. By his good conduct, let him show him works of meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly unspiritual, demonic, for jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. James identifies this list of character qualities that come from godly wisdom. He says it's pure. That word actually means holy. Secondly, it's peaceable. It loves peace and it promotes peace. It's gentle, which actually carries the the, the idea of being fair-minded. And it's not just what's fair for you, but making sure that others' concerns are addressed. Open to reason. King James, I think, says easily entreated. My Greek professor told us that word could be translated willingness to yield. Sometimes we're intractable. My position is my position. I'm not going to change. That's not reasonable. That's not open to reason. That's not a willingness to yield. That's not wisdom that comes from above. Again, I'm not talking about compromising on truth. I'm talking about willing to meet a brother or a sister. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial, which means it doesn't play favorites. It doesn't say, I need to make sure I get my way. It's sincere. It doesn't have a hidden agenda. What you see is what you get. So sin oftentimes hinders real peace. Another is weakness. Sometimes our own frailties get in the way. Fear of man causes us to wonder, what do people think about me? And it produces distrust rather than trust. We're afraid that someone will reject us so we don't go and have the difficult conversation that is required in order to make peace. There's an an insecurity that sometimes is manifest by insisting on my way because I can't afford to let go of my way because that's all I have. 
Or it can look like retreating. What you might call peace faking rather than peace making. The reality is healthy and harmonious relationships, they're a lot of trouble. And there are some who simply decide it's not worth the effort because they're weak. Another hindrance is failure. Maybe it's failure to listen to a brother's or sister's perspective or their concerns. Maybe it's failure to follow through on commitments. Maybe it's failure to be patient with a brother or sister and their failures. But failures can lead to conflict. A a fourth that he mentions are minor offenses. When two sinners spend enough time around one another, something very interesting happens. They sin against each other, right? Uh, In one way or another. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but a multitude of sins sounds like a whole lot, a large number. And it says love covers that. And so rather than taking offense at every little thing or even everything that, that might not be so little, we need to ask the question, can love cover this? That may be this person is caught in this sin. There's a sin habit that needs help getting out of it. But it's simply this bugged me. This bothered me. I didn't like it. Can love cover that? Sometimes the answer is yes. Some offenses really aren't that big a deal. You can choose to take offense. This is a radical thought. Or you can choose not to take offense even when somebody sins against you deliberately. You can choose not to take offense. That was a very freeing piece of information I received during one of the most tumultuous times of my life. Dealing with a very, very difficult relationship. And a wise pastor said, Jamie, it's your choice whether you choose to take offense or not. Every offense doesn't have to become a major issue if love can cover it. We read earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another means there's going to be something we have to bear with, right? It means there are going to be offenses. There are going to be uh, grievances. There are going to be issues, It recognizes change takes time. We're in the process of progressive sanctification. We are all semi-sanctified. We're half-baked. I say that humorously, but it's actually true. And we can't expect our brother or our sister to be fully sanctified in the way they deal with us if we're not. And so we have to bear with one another in love. We all have a lot of room to grow. And we grow together, sometimes through bearing with one another in love. And so we need to be careful. We don't let minor offenses destroy this peace. There are times we address them, but sometimes we can simply choose to let cover, let love cover over it. Another hindrance that they mentioned was misunderstanding. Sometimes we can end up talking past one another. I assume that I understand what you mean by what you said. And interpreted by, through my filter, it might come out very different from what you actually intended for me to hear. So I can get all worked up over something that's not even true. Have you ever watched a Hallmark movie? <clears throat> Every single story. Uh, there's a, there's a, I told my wife the other day, I'd like to have a data a spreadsheet of all the common elements in all these Hallmark movies. But one that is common to every single movie is a misunderstanding that threatens the future of the 
pivotal relationship, the love relationship. There's this misunderstanding, and one or the other says, I guess it's over, and they walk away. And I I just want to grab them and go, go talk to them and make sure you know what's going on. But then, you know, that would take all the drama out of the movie, right? But you know what? We're not supposed to have drama in the church. We're supposed to have peace. We want to be as graciously clear with one another as we passively can. We want to be careful about drawing conclusions without knowing for sure what the other really means. Now, those those aren't all the hindrances. There are others, but, but they do represent for us just how messy and just how difficult relationships can be. But but healthy relationships, peace is not an option. It's commanded. We are to strive for peace with everyone. So let's look at some strategies, finally, to pursue peace with one another. How might we strive for peace? Well, first of all, you need to recognize that peace requires constant effort. This word strive means to pursue eagerly. It's not, I hope peace breaks out somewhere, but you pursue it. You go after it. Uh, it's a continual action. The verb is a, a continual action, not a one-time decision. I'm going I'm to be a peaceful person. It's something you constantly can, are having to pursue because relationships are fluid. We change. Relationships change, and we need to always be pursuing peace. It's like tending a garden. My wife and I bought a house about 1992, and they had a beautiful little rose garden on the back of the porch. It was lovely. And we cut some gorgeous roses that first year that we lived there. And the second year they died. Because I didn't have a clue how to take care of roses. Beautiful flowers don't just pop out of the ground and thrive. You have to cultivate them. You have to cultivate the soil. You have to fertilize it. You have to plant. You have to water. You have to pull the weeds. You have to do all the things that would lead to the health of those delicate and beautiful flowers. Now, there are, there are some shrubs that don't take a whole lot of effort. That's the kind I put at my house. But there are others, like roses, they, they require constant care. Are they going to die? But it's a labor of love. People who have really nice rose gardens, they love it. It's, it's, it's a passion. And peace is like a rose garden. It's fragile. It requires careful attention and tending. But like a bouquet of beautiful roses, it is absolutely worth the effort. So you, first of all, recognize that peace is going to require constant effort. But secondly, you have to make peace a priority. In Romans 14, we talked about the fact that believers were destroying one another over food. Their personal preferences became more important to them than the peace of the body as members of one another. And you sit back and look at that and because we don't live in that context and that culture, and we don't understand the dimensions of meat offered to idols and so forth, we might scratch our heads. But you remember when COVID came through? And there were people who said, you know what? I just, because of health issues that I have, health concerns, I don't feel like I can worship with people who aren't wearing masks. And there are others who are saying, there's no way you can make me wear a mask. And it's like, we, we tried to hold out and say, guys, it's not about getting what you want. It's about loving one another and moving toward one another, building each other up. And if putting on a mask that is uncomfortable to you is too big a sacrifice to build up your brother or sister who is vulnerable, I think you need to ask yourself some questions. There are times that 
that we're willing to go to the mat over issues that are not of critical importance. And we sacrifice what is critically important, which is the peace of God's church. And there are certainly some issues that are they're, they're, they're non-negotiable. I understand that. But a lot of times the, con- the conflicts that arise among believers are not nearly as significant as the peace we sacrifice. During the Vietnam War, <clears throat> uh, American soldiers were told, uh, your mission is to go take that hill. And <clears throat> enemy soldiers are on top of the hill. They're dug in. It's heavily defended. <clears throat> and they attack the hill. And some soldiers don't come back. But they take the hill. And in some cases, after they took the hill, they found that that hill was of great strategic importance. And as painful as the sacrifice was, they said, it was right, it was worth it. And there are other hills they got to the top, and it's like, what in the world are are we doing? Why did they send us up here on this ridiculous mission at this great cost? This hill was not worth dying on. That's where this phrase comes from. Sometimes we see an issue, an argument, a conflict, and say, this hill is not worth dying on. We can yield on this. There are other things that are far more important than winning this piece of land. And sometimes the issue is just not as important as the peace that we disrupt. So a third strategy is you need to commit yourself to being a peacemaker not a peace breaker or a peace faker. Now, these are terms coined by a man named Ken Sandy who wrote the book, The Peacemaker, and uh, founder of Peacemaker Ministries, a godly lawyer, Christian elder. And he defines these three this way. He says a peace breaker is one who is constantly asserting himself. He may be contentious. He loves to debate. He stirs up trouble. And there are a lot of reasons we could be peace breakers. Sometimes it's just selfishness. I want what I want. I want my rights. I insist on my way, my way or the highway. Sometimes I feel like I need to be right, and I need you to recognize that I'm the one who's right. How many times have you had an argument over who's right? I remember an argument with my younger sister when I was a teenager, and some of the wisest words my father ever gave me. I went to him and said, Dad, she won't admit that I'm right and she's wrong. And he said, Jamie, if you know that you're right, What does it matter? I was set free. Didn't matter. She couldn't control me any longer. And sometimes it just doesn't matter whether other people acknowledge that you're right or not. It's more important that you do right than you are recognized as being right. Sometimes we uh, we're peace breakers by uh, allowing a negative and critical spirit to creep in, particularly toward one or two particular people. And maybe it's happened in a marriage. And I've seen many times in marriages this negative, critical spirit happens and couples, uh, individuals begin to assume the worst about one another. We impute evil motives to everything the person says or does. We put the worst possible spin on their words, even when they meant well, rather than love which bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things, and never fails. We don't assume the best, we assume the worst. There's no regard here for peace. We're too busy trying to put the other person in their place. Or sometimes we're just too quick to take offense. We're we're a little too thin-skinned. And so we take offense when we don't need to. It's been said that too oftentimes pastors are hard-hearted and thin-skinned when we ought to be tender-hearted and thick-skinned. I agree with that. We ought to be tender-hearted and thick-skinned because everybody's not going to be happy with everything you do. 
And if you're up front and in public, you're going you're gonna to get shot at a little bit more. And that's okay. I'm not inviting it, by the way. But it's a reality. We're semi-sanctified too. So we can let our feelings get hurt. We can feel slighted in some way and allow that to break peace rather than love covering over that. Another way this, this peace breaker can manifest itself, there are some believers who view themselves as valiant for truth. And so they end up getting in arguments all the time, constantly trying to instruct other people and show them what they know. One of the manifestations in Reformed churches is what has often been called a cage stage Calvinist. Particularly a young man, when he first comes to understand the five points of Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, and he's like, I've got it. And he's so proud of himself. And he's so sure that he's right, and he despises those Arminians who don't see what I see. And he wrecks relationships. He wreaks havoc among people that he ought to be appealing to in wisdom and humility and kindness and grace. The reality is he's not a Calvinist yet because the doctrines of grace ought to make us humble and gracious, not arrogant and contentious. If he thinks he's got a handle on the truth that somehow makes him superior to other people, he's a peace breaker and needs some humility. That's the peace breaker. The peace fakers are those who want peace at any price. In reality, they're really primarily committed to protecting themselves rather than protecting real peace. They avoid conflict. They never deal with problems. They sweep them under the rug and they hope it'll just kind of go away. And I've seen this a lot. If you know me well, you know this is my natural tendency, actually. And I have to make myself not pretend there's peace when there's an issue that needs to be dealt with. But it's so easy to maintain a semblance of peace and never truly resolve any issue. And I've seen that in marriages that for decades of conflict, there's never a resolution. There's never a reconciliation. There's never a resolve, a settlement to those conflicts. They're peace fakers. But Jesus calls us to be peace makers. Blessed are the peace makers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, a peacemaker is one who's committing, committed to pleasing God rather than pleasing himself. He's not self-asserting like the peace breaker. He's not self-protecting like the peace faker. He is self-denying for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's willing to have honest, humble conversations. And he's going to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. He's going to listen carefully to his brother. He's going to ask questions and say, I want to make sure I understand what you're really saying. I want to make sure I really truly understand what you mean by this. And it may be that we disagree on an issue. But we need to understand where the other person's coming from and why. And what can we do about it that would really honor the Lord? And it's not about winning. It's about being winsome. We seek to understand those root causes of the conflict. Sometimes we're just staking out our own turf. A peacemaker addresses issues of the heart. He confronts sin where it's necessary. First, by getting the log out of his own eye, Jesus tells us, and then looking to the speck in his brother's eye, he regards his own sins as much, much greater than that of his brother. A log as opposed to a speck. And so when he goes to his brother, he goes with the spirit of gentleness in a solution-oriented way. That's a peacemaker. That's what God's calling us to be. Brothers and sisters, in the new year, we're to strive 
and really all the time, strive for peace with everyone. That requires constant attention, attention and consistent effort as we've seen. It requires that we give peace and healthy relationships the same priority that God places upon them, that we view peace, peace the way God views it among his people. Parents, when you see your kids fussing and fighting with one another, it doesn't break your heart. Just, are you serious? What about the heart of God? And it requires that we commit ourselves to be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. That word, that term, son of God in the New Testament, is not so much about being a child of God in relationship with God. And it's not so much about being a male offspring. Son of God, most of the time, if you go back and look, it's referring to some kind of godly character. It's like, if you're a peacemaker, you will bear the family resemblance. You will be like your father in heaven. You will be a chip off the old block. You will show yourself to be a son of God. We don't make ourselves children of God by what we do but we show ourselves to be sons of God by godly character like being peacemakers. So ask yourself, am I a peace breaker? And sometimes we might be that with one or two people, but not very anybody else. And nobody, nobody would ever dream, but that's there. Or am I a peace faker? I'm just not going to deal with this hard thing. It's just too much trouble. It's not worth it. They're not worth it. I'm too afraid. I don't think it'll work anyway. Are we going to be peacemakers? As much as you're able, be at peace with all men. Ask yourself that question. Ask your spouse if you're married. Ask your parents, kids. Am I a peacemaker in our home? Do I sow peace? Do I have that influence over my brothers and sisters, over you guys? I can remember... <laughs> When my son Daniel was about six years old, Lydia and I had a discussion, and it was slightly tense. He didn't agree with you, and we were kind of working through it. But nobody was mad. Nobody was arguing. Nobody was yelling. Nobody was saying anything wrong. We were just talking about it in front of him. And he's like, y'all, stop. He about freaked out. He's trying to be a peacemaker. Is there anyone that you need to strive for peace toward? Maybe it's a broken relationship and you need, to, you need to do what it takes as far as you're able to repair the breach and establish peace once again. Maybe it's not broken, it's just kind of cool. There's an issue that, that you, just, you haven't tried to resolve it. There's an offense that you haven't been willing to let go. You, there's a step, you know you need to take it, but, but it just seems too difficult. You're not sure, is it really going to work? Is it worth the effort anyway? Obedience is always worth the effort. So as you enter this new year, I'm going to leave you with this challenge. The challenge to pursue, to strive after healthy, godly relationships characterized by this shalom, by the way things ought to be, the kind of relationships that, yeah, that's the way Christians ought to build one another up, encourage one another, love each other, listen to each other, be patient with one another. Yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. They are a mess, but they're a mess worth making. So may God give you and God give me the grace that we need to strive for peace with everyone. Amen.